Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast, the podcast where we take all of the damn interesting articles from the curated link section of damninteresting.com, run them down, give you the information, and uh, hopefully have some fun along the way. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, this is from Wired.com, written by Sophia Chen. The article is, A Tiny Glass Bead Goes As Still As Nature Allows. So at the university, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's very poetic. It's very still. Uh, at the University of Vienna, some physicists have rendered a microscopic glass bead completely motionless. It's suspended in a vacuum, held in place by lasers. So like is the idea like matter is always moving a little bit? Yeah. So this this glass bead which is a tiny little microscopic glass bead apparently thousands of uh, times smaller than a grain of sand. Sure. And it's being suspended in a vacuum and and lasers are like hitting it with photons to kind of stop it from wobbling. And to be clear, as the article goes on, it makes more and more exceptions here, okay? <laughs> First of all, it's only motionless along one spatial dimension. Well, it's There's still be... a little bit of wobble. And it's got to be relative to the motion of the Earth. Like, we're flying through the galaxy. So even when you're motionless, it's like, oh, it's motionless with this particular frame of reference. That's true. And the frame yeah. of reference isn't being shot by lasers, so it's wiggling. Yeah, like I hadn't that. even thought yeah. of that. But yeah, the, the sun's spinning what around. What was the impetus what? to do this experiment? What, what were they seeking to achieve? Just that it could be done? Well, the idea is... And by the way, I, I do want to say there's a lot of potential gags here, so I would just like to run over a few of the possibilities. <laughs> Please do. Um, you could go family-friendly. These scientists wanted to see a motionless object. Maybe they should just come over and meet my cat. Uh -huh, you know, that's right. very family-friendly, right, very Garfield-type. That's Garfield the lazy type. animal, right. You, know, you could go the, if, if this was the 80s and you were doing kind of reactionary anti-union comedy, you'd be like, <laughs> oh, they want to meet a motionless object. How about a teamster? <laughs> Um, or you could do it Rodney Dangerfield style, which would be like, oh, they wanted to see a motionless object. You should have watched the last time I had sex with my wife. Um, but in any case. <laughs> I can yeah. see you've thought about this. Like, yeah, yeah, ages. yeah. It's very, it's very, there's a lot of different ways you could go with this one. But anyhow, <laughs> so what happens when an object becomes still? Like truly know, all motionless. All of its kinetic energy mean? extracted. Well, I've got some exciting news <gasps> for you. Quantum mechanics <gasps> start getting weird as <gasps> they often do. <laughs> For one thing, quote, the bead becomes delocalized. It no longer has a definite position, like a ripple in a pond which stretches over an expanse of water. Instead of maintaining a sharp boundary between bead and vacuum, the bead's outline becomes cloudy. It's very weird. I don't yeah, even I'm know what that- Yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know what that means, but yeah, it becomes cloudy and diffuse. Continuing the quote here, put another way, nature does not allow any object to have completely zero motion. There must always be some quantum jiggle. Because if it was truly, truly motionless, like the boundary would be fading even more until the thing just didn't even exist. I, I suppose something like that. It's very strange. It's almost That's... like everything else around it has to compensate for the fact that everything is always moving all of the time. And, and again, this is this is something that is only motionless along one out of three spatial dimensions. That's right. We haven't even remotely achieved... True motionlessness. Yes. At which point all of reality collapses on itself. Maybe right? this is what dark matter is. Dark matter is nothing but still stuff, things that are not moving. Mm. And if we ever 
kicked it like a kickball, then all of a sudden it would it would suddenly pop <laughs> yeah, into yeah, existence. It's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. It's an, and uh, you know what? Check out the article because uh, the box looks pretty nice. Little bead in cool there. Looking, cool looking equipment. Um, it wouldn't even be visible to the naked eye though, given how small it is. No, it's very small. It's oh, very, so this is like small. electron microscope kind of pictures they've got going on in the article. Uh, no, I think it's, it's. I don't know. What does that look like to you? Photon activity. It looks like how. To hold it honestly, in place. it looks like it looks like the little dot of how. It's like, what are you doing, Dave? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that little glass bead, it's not moving. You know how most times you see a picture and it looks like nothing is moving. That is usually not an accurate representation of reality. But in this case, you're looking <laughs> the at this photo. Real. You, you might as well be looking at a video because that thing ain't moving. <laughs> You could take a video of the thing not moving and you would have no idea. Yeah. So riveting video. <laughs> this article contains a pivot to video, even though there's no videos in it. How does that how does that strike you? Just trying to reach the new audience, man. <laughs> the Facebook audience. All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. It's been a few weeks. We got to talk about the coronavirus. I'm sorry. Forgive oh, me. Yeah. For, we, yeah. We avoided it for long enough. We did, but it doesn't seem to be going away or getting mm -mm. much better. Um, I'm not here to do any kind of crazy alarmist stuff, but let's take a look at the bats, basically, because you know mm. how much I love animals. This article is titled, How Do Bats Live With So Many Viruses? by James Gorman for the New York Times. <laughs> So it's not fully conclusive, but there's strong evidence that this coronavirus situation we're experiencing has a bat origin. They're thinking it was the Chinese horseshoe bat, which is a really common species. Hmm. Um, Does it look like a horseshoe? I think its nose kind of has like a little horseshoe okay. kind of thing, but hmm. it looks like a bat. Because fruit bats eat fruit. Yeah. So horseshoe bats might eat horseshoes. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. That would explain so much, you guys. <laughs> Um, they eat the <laughs> disgusting, grubby, <laughs> contaminated I mean, horseshoes. Okay, so they are a little bit grubby. I mean, like, bats carry and live with a ton of viruses. Apparently, they're really unique in the mammal world in being able to host many different viruses without getting sick. So, for example, they're considered the natural reservoir for the Marburg virus, Nipah and Hendra viruses, which have caused human disease and outbreaks in Africa, Malaysia, Bangladesh, and Australia. They're also thought to be the natural reservoir for the Ebola virus. We all remember that hoot nanny um, yeah. <laughs> later <laughs> ago. And those SARS and MERS epidemics that we also mm -hmm. experienced caused by bat coronaviruses, as well as a highly destructive viral epidemic in pigs. So they're basically these little bags of virus-carrying cutie flutes. And, and these things don't kill the bats in any no. significant numbers. They're, they're just carriers. Exactly. Is it like that gag on The Simpsons where the doctor's trying to explain why Mr. Burns is still alive? And, he's like, <laughs> and he shows the photo of like all the different diseases like trying to get through the door at the same time. He's like, you actually have like 20 life-threatening ailments, but none of them can like predominate. <laughs> you know what? That is a surprisingly apt metaphor. Perfect. Yeah, all the Viruses are fighting each other inside the bats? They don't really fight each other. I'm, so for, for example, they do carry rabies, but rabies can make them sick. That's one of the sort of few exceptions mm -hmm. here. They basically have a tolerance of viruses that surpasses that of other mammals. Hmm. Basically... Bats have a capacity to handle something called DNA sensing. So basically, because the demands of flight are so great, the cells in the bat body break down and release bits of DNA that then just float around where they shouldn't be. So they're basically huh. like remixing themselves constantly, breaking down cells and having bits of DNA floating around them. In order to get energy 
to fly without hollow bones and feathers. Exactly right. Okay. And so mammals, including bats, have ways to identify and respond to such bits of DNA, which might indicate an invasion of a disease-causing organism. But in bats, they found, evolution has weakened that system, which would normally cause inflammation as it fought the viruses. Uh -huh. So obviously inflammation is really damaging to the body. So there's a weakened response so that they're not constantly undergoing, I don't know, fibromyalgia or whatever other inflammation diseases are. So bats cannot get autoimmune diseases, basically, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> no, but they could sure give us a whole bunch of other diseases, yeah. right? Wow. <laughs> bats are numerous and widespread. They live on every continent except for Antarctica. When they do live in caves and stuff, they're in really crowded conditions, which are ideal for bouncing viruses mm -hmm. back and forth. And they typically live in proximity to humans and farms. And people in many parts of the world do still eat bats and yeah. sell them in live animal markets, which was the source of SARS and possibly the corona outbreak that we're mm -hmm. experiencing right now. And they have a powerful propagandistic ally in the Batman who <laughs> teaches generation out every generation of kids. The There's bats a, are cool. a Batman. And they tell yeah, it's cool to be literally surrounded by bats. <laughs> He's just a grieving young boy who's bit by a bat and then dies of SARS. <laughs> Too, That's a good Too a good real, reboot. dude. Too real. <laughs> a warning to all of you. That's right. If you want to, if you want to see a bat, get out your comic books. Yeah. There yes. you go. Yeah. Look it up on Wikipedia. The end. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, somebody over at National Geographic was doing almost a Mad Libs with their headline. Uh, <laughs> it is: Could Pablo Escobar's escaped hippos help the environment? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Pablo Escobar, obviously very famous drug dealer in Colombia, incredibly wealthy. I mean, just unbelievably oh, yeah. wealthy. There's a tidbit floating around that said at some point they were spending $2,500 a week on rubber bands to hold their money. Like, wow. I mean, just unbelievable <laughs> wealth that you can't even really comprehend. Oh, that's wow. stacks. So, yeah, stacks. that's a lot of cash. Yeah. But so he had a compound in Colombia. like, you know, the Neverland of, of <laughs> Colombia. And just as Michael Jackson had monkeys, Pablo Escobar had a zoo yeah. of creatures for himself. And this included hippos, of which he was said to be particularly fond. I don't sure. know how true that is, but... At any rate, when he was killed in 1993, the Colombian government seized the property and had to deal with all of the things that were on the property, mm -hmm. including the animals. So most of the small animals got shipped off to zoos and whatever, but the hippos, they were in this big pond and they couldn't really catch them. And they just said, you know what, just leave them there. Just mm. it, let, them, let them be. They're fine. Right. They'll fend for themselves. Turns out they fended for themselves very well. Uh, <laughs> what started as four hippos in 1993 is now nearly 100 hippos today. Whoa. Wow. They have expanded out of their pond and into the nearby Magdalena River. Uh, and they are starting to cause some problems. Yeah. Aside from harassing villagers and kind of, you know, just spreading out. Because hippos, they don't eat people, but they are aggressive and they will attack. Yeah. They're territorial, right? right? And they'll yeah. definitely muck up the ecosystem as well. Right. Well, so that's yeah. sort of the problem is that one of the things about hippos is that they eat on land, but they poop in the water exclusively. <laughs> and so from an ecosystem standpoint, you are taking nutrients out of the terrestrial ecosystem and dumping it into the aquatic ecosystem. And polluting it. And both yeah. are kind of un unstable because of that. It changes the pH of the water, which changes the fish habitability. And even to the degree that when they kind of stomp these massive channels in the mud as they travel through, it can change the course right. of a river. It totally yeah. changes the it's wetlands. It's like feral hogs aquatic edition. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And much bigger. <laughs> Big boys. So they're obviously, they know it's a problem. They know it's getting worse. But at the same time, they really don't have the resources 
to know what to do with it. They tried a couple of programs where they were castrating the hippos oh. just so, you know, they, they don't want to... Yeah. Animal conservation. You don't want to just kill them all. Trap, neuter, release. Yeah. Uh, and that's very expensive and very hard. Uh, yeah. The hippos don't no. appreciate it. Uh, they did have a video on the site of one hippo being captured and then being sent away. They didn't show the operation, but they showed oh. darting the hippo mm-hmm. and then, like, intubating it with this massive <laughs> PVC pipe. Oh, buddy. <laughs> but, they, you know, they're, they're really not sure what to do about it. They did... As sort of an experiment, I guess, they did capture one juvenile to send it to a zoo. And the total cost of that entire thing was 15 million pesos, which translates to about $4,500, which is not unbelievable, but it is just not something that they have the resources for Mm -hmm. locally. Uh, But at the same time... The villagers are kind of getting pretty upset that yeah. these hippos are traipsing through their towns. And they have video of that as well. Just this hippo sort of wandering <laughs> through a village. <laughs> and there's different camps over whether this is truly destructive to the environment or just different for the environment. Right. There's some people who are arguing that the hippo is filling an ecological niche that was left by the extinct toxodon which is a bigger hippo-like creature in a previous era. Mm. And so it's just sort of doing the thing that the Toxodon used to do, and it's really not going to destroy everything. It's just going to sort of shift us back to what the ecosystem was like back then. There's also the tapir population Mm. is apparently declining. And somehow the hippos are taking over what the tapir would have done and therefore keeping it more stable. Mm. So really... It's a big argument, and they don't know what to do, but it's kind of cool that these hippos found know, a way. Yeah, they're yeah. doing fine without us. <laughs> and it's just, we're just talking about like a hundred, you said? Yeah, but they're in a sort of yeah. really concentrated area, <clears throat> and that's a hundred over 27 years, which is apparently a pretty good reproduction mm-hmm. rate. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, these hippos are getting it on, and they are yeah. having babies like gangbusters. And so they're, of course, extrapolating like, oh, it's going to be way worse in another 10, 20 years. They, at this point, they're already, it's too late. They don't know what to do about the problem. I wonder if there are any other endangered species that drug lords have exotic petified and, and have, transplanted to places they didn't naturally yeah. well live. i mean they've obviously done a bunch of that like you'll see you know tiktoks or instagram videos of huge pumas in russia being kept as pets right just like carried around right yeah. but i mean is this possibly like a black market repopulation it's a good thing yeah. right i mean like yeah. if it worked for the hippos could we get this to work for rhinos maybe i mean just some just got to find a volunteer to accept a rhino as a pet yeah <laughs> two of them at oh, least yes at least, at least. <laughs> yeah i think it's a great i mean you know in uh, movies you always see like a james bond movie you know the villain has always got exotic animals it's a, short, it's a shorthand to, for like, rich eat. and crazy yeah, yeah and usually they're there to eat people you mm-hmm. know like you got through their pit, pit of gators you gotta i wonder if he did ever uh, just throw anyone to the hippos which... i'm almost certain that has been done yeah it <laughs> yeah. seems like at the very least if you do have some uh inconvenient bodies you want to get rid of right. go feed them to uh right to yeah the zoo. yeah yeah did they demolish the Escobar estate? Could they just give the hippos the Escobar estate? The keys to the know? palace? Yeah, yeah. just like let them. <laughs> the trust clearly stipulates that the care and maintenance <laughs> of the hippos is going to. No, I don't know, I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. Pablo Escobar. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, like, I mean, I assume he had a, a number of compounds. Let's just let them have the pool, the home theater room. Convert it into the... something open to the public so it becomes a zoo that then. Well, and that's something else they noted was that something like 50,000 tourists are coming at this point. So there, it is bringing tourism dollars to the area, which maybe could raise enough money to keep them under control. I don't know. Wow. I, I think it's <laughs> it's a complicated <laughs> problem to have. Yeah. Hippo All we have problem. Are, yeah, we just have like parrots here in Austin, right? Oh, yeah. The wild parrots that have some like pets have escaped and stuff. And now we have wild parrots yeah, running yeah. around. Yeah. That must have been one of the lower level lackeys. 
That's right. He he wasn't an evil mastermind. He was just sort of like a low-level villain. Right. Yeah. And into birds. You know bird people. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Penguin, you know, that uh, on the Batman theme. You That's know, true. We, yeah. do have, we do have precedent for a villain whose who's villainy is <laughs> somehow derived but from his passion for birds. I feel like the hippo has a lot of promise as a supervillain kind of premise. He just kind of, you know, yeah. destroys the land but then pollutes the water. Yeah, and he just kind of looks like a very amiable, overweight guy who yeah. you totally understand. Underestimate, but right. then if right. you, you cross, just like Pablo Escobar, you cross his path, he just like, yeah. he just, like <laughs> stomps right on your head. The round teeth kind of throw you off. Usually, villains have those sharp teeth, but yeah, little round. Yeah, peg. it's re- it's weird how we underestimate hippos just because it's like, oh, look at their their stubby teeth. <laughs> It's like they don't have sharp teeth. How could they be dangerous? No, not possible. Because they're huge. <laughs> they're, huge. <laughs> they're really big. They're really big, and if they put you in their mouth, they will break your spine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. All right, next link. Next, next link. link. Oh, well, speaking of dangerous things, <gasps> super villainy. This is a very loose segue, but <laughs> this article is titled Artificial Intelligence Will Do What We Ask, period. Uh-oh. That's a problem, yeah. period. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want people asking things. Yeah. Um, this is from Quanta Magazine. The author is Natalie Wolchover. It's about a significant problem in artificial intelligence, which Wolchover spells out in the lead. Quote, the danger of having artificially intelligent machines do our bidding is that we might not be careful enough about what we wish for. The lines of code that animate these machines will inevitably lack nuance, forget to spell out caveats, and end up giving AI systems goals and incentives that don't align with our true preferences. So this is an overview, really, of a particular approach toward creating and programming artificial intelligence systems. So one case that we're all probably partially familiar with is, you know, YouTube's AI-based recommendation algorithms. Right, which just keeps going Mm -hmm. even further and further. The recommendation algorithms that YouTube uses are powered by artificial intelligence in the sense that, like, they're kind of given the goal of maximizing viewing time, Mm -hmm. and then they sort of dynamically figure out which by, videos are going like, to keep how you to do in it. your seat. Yeah, and this has, as many people have observed, and it has scared a lot of people, it has been found that you know one of the most consistent ways to do this is to simply keep offering up more extreme versions of mm-hmm. whatever you're watching. You know, if you're watching a video of some garden variety right-wing blowhard, then it's going to recommend mm-hmm. you something a little harder, like a Ben Shapiro video. And then, you know, like five clicks later, you're, you're watching- You're on Stormfront. You're watching, <laughs> yeah, you're watching some incel in his basement, like right. sketching out why Soros, is, Soros is putting yeah. chemicals in the water that are making young women unreceptive to the <laughs> eligible gentlemen <laughs> in their age cohort. You seem to know a lot about these videos, but <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this is this is what everyone tells me. I, I right. everyone talks about you know like oh god, my kid was just on YouTube yeah. watching videos and then all suddenly sudden, like all yeah. of a sudden they, right right. Yeah. I mean, nothing grabs eyeballs like fear yeah. or confusion. Yeah. yeah, no. If you tell a, an AI addict us, please, mm-hmm. that is what it's going to do. Right, mm-hmm. right. And there's like you know. This plays out in, I won't say benign, but like also like non-political ways too. I mean, if you watch a video about jogging, Mm -hmm. it's going to offer you a video about running a marathon. If you watch Mm -hmm. a video about running a marathon, it's going to offer you a video about doing an Ironman marathon. Mm -hmm. Or um, Mm -hmm. as I can say from personal experience, if you watch a video that's like, oh, does CBD really work for anxiety? Like two clicks later, you're watching something titled Skinny Bro Chokes on Fat Dab, LOL. (laughs) Uh, You know, so... (laughs) But again, this is just, you have these 
algorithms that have some level of artificial intelligence and you're just saying your goal is maximize viewing time go nuts figure out how to do that right and it's hard to convince youtube to say let's put some parameters on that your goal is two hours max and then you really want to kind of taper it off because that's not in youtube's benefit they want you to watch as many ads as possible sure and that becomes part of it too of course is you know people are trying to monetize you and your attention and so forth but another tricky case is self-driving cars of course because I mean, first and foremost, if we're creating a self-driving car, like what are we going to tell it is its top priority, right? Mm. Don't crash. But in fact, artificial intelligence that is treating that as its top priority will start and stop so many times that the passenger gets sick, Mm -hmm. you know, it'll stop in the middle of the road because of a plastic bag and you know that can be dangerous in its own way. So the, the thing is, if you go into creating one of these artificial intelligences and you presume to like explain what the priority or the goal or the outcome is up top in a kind of flat way, you get these outcomes that don't really work or make sense because human beings, we actually have complicated shifting sets of preferences and what we would Mm -hmm. like to happen in different contexts. Yeah. So that brings us to the heart of the matter here, which is that Stuart Russell, who is a computer scientist who has done a lot of work on AI since the 80s, recently put out a book called Human Compatible, in which he lays out what he calls the three principles of beneficial machines. All right. So this is kind of a nod to the Robocop rules, right? uh, (laughs) That's good. That was what they were. Well, it's a nod to uh, Isaac Asimov's, you know, three laws of robots. Take it to Isaac Asimov instead of Robocop. (laughs) Look, they're probably related. I'm sure. I think the writers of Robocop probably based theirs off of Isaac Asimov. I just, what if a a robot, but also a cop? (laughs) Um, But the three principles as he lays them out, are one, the machine's only objective is to maximize the realization of human preferences. Oh, okay. I mean, it, yes, but it's generic. Like, how does it... All right, go, go on. Well, it, it's more about... It's about an approach, which right. they try to describe, and I'm a little confused, so maybe y'all can help me out. But anyhow, the second principle is the machine is initially uncertain about what those preferences are. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, so in part other words, of it is figuring you out. don't want to code with some kind of certainty about what the actual preference Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Three, the ultimate source of information about human preference is human behavior. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you want to create an AI, you should create it in such a way that all it knows is that I want to align with human preferences, but I don't know exactly what those preferences are. Mm But I have to watch human beings to understand their preferences. See, but doesn't that, isn't that exactly what the problem is with YouTube? Because we say, of course, I don't want to watch nine hours of conspiracy videos, but our behavior is that we sit in the chair and watch them. That's a very good point. I mean, I would think you'd almost (laughs) want the opposite. There's, our preferences are what we would state in a, a rational intellectual way, not what our bodies are, are right. tricking right. us into It's like doing. a descriptive versus normative or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Are we going to base it on how things actually are, imperfect as they may be, or do we devise some way of determining what things ought to be like or how mm-hmm. we should be right. doing them? And then how do we aggregate that with the most diversity inclusion so that we have as broad a sample size as possible? Because I know that like hetero, cis, white, male, silicon bro 
bias has already been documented in a lot of AI failures, right. especially yeah. when it comes to like recognizing African Americans and Google image searches and right, things like, like facial that. recognition can't mm-hmm. see. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I mean the whole thing sounds very, very creepy to me. Now, when you break it down to a couple of particular examples, it's like okay, I get, I start to see the point. Although it's it's hard to extrapolate how you get from these simple things to more complex things. So one example mm-hmm. is a robot with an artificial intelligence that its job is to decorate, right? Like interior design your house? Yeah, but in a very limited context here where there's a bunch of different vases and the robot is asked to place a flower in one of them. And the way that this is done is like, okay, watch me, human. Here's where I'm going to put the flower, okay? Now the robot has the same options, but not necessarily arranged in the same way. So it's Mm -hmm. not, the robot is not going to mirror 100%. Mm -hmm. The robot has to figure out, okay, should I put the flower here because it's to the left Mm -hmm. of the red one? Does it matter that it's in the center? Does it matter that, you know, so you just repeat the exercise Mm -hmm. over and over again. Until it's able to pick out. And you train the AI that way Mm -hmm. that, okay, these are the kind of hierarchy of concerns and priorities in terms of arranging this flower. Okay, nice, cute. Another example is with self-driving cars. Instead of attempting to work from the top down, giving the car a hierarchy of priorities that are like, number one, don't crash. Number two, don't hit get, people. Get me there on time, you mm-hmm. know, like, and figuring out how to weight those. What you would do is essentially make the car watch a bunch of recordings mm-hmm. of, of people, hum- driving. people driving that have been simply ranked in some way. Mm-hmm. So it's like, this is the best driving. This is good, but not great driving. And you just do thousands and thousands of those and hope that you've created the AI in such a way that it has the sophistication to kind of build a more organic set of principles and priorities based on looking at all of these living examples of how humans actually like I get how this can cut run. down on data input time because if you're just saying here are all the rules of Ikebana, of flower arranging. Like this is aesthetically mm-hmm. the way, like when you're learning photography and the rule of thirds, like you're, you're taught some certain criteria, rules, whatever. And then you supplement that with examples of how that kind of brings it to life. But it sounds like with AI, we're training them the other way around, just examples first, and you'll figure out the rules from there, even if we're not explicitly stating them to you and mm-hmm. translating it into math or whatever they speak. Right. If you give an AI a rule, it's going to treat it like a real rule. And like the thing about humans that makes us complicated and wonderful and frustrating is that like we know the rules are like rule-ish. Yeah, rules you know? are for breaking. That's yeah. what, you know. And <laughs> rules exist in context with other rules and other systems that right. we kind of adapt and use plasticity to put together. But yeah. this, these are such isolated. Like I'd be curious to know what some of the – if we force the AI that's, you know, learning to drive itself as a car – and said, okay, what have you learned from this, from all the examples we have? Go ahead and frame these as rules in English. And, you know, yeah, you're going to get some of the fun garbled stuff. But, like, would they match up to what we understand and are being taught ourselves? Or would they even be able to, much like a human has a really hard time saying Mm -hmm. these are the rules versus, of course, I I just, I know that's the rule. I Mm -hmm. I know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't articulate exactly what I was doing, but I know what I was doing. Yeah. So some major challenges that Russell calls out. One is the fact that our behavior is so far from being rational that it could be very hard to reconstruct our true underlying preferences. (laughs) I'll buy that. Yeah. Yeah, You think um, the second challenge is that human preferences change. That's true, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we have short-term, medium, and long-term goals, uh, which often work directly against yep. each other <laughs> in a individual as well as collectively. But look, I mean, for me, it's like, look, we all know sometimes we've all been a real obsequious people pleaser, you know, mm-hmm. someone who's just like trying to figure out what you want before you've even had a second to think about it Mm-mm. yourself just up in your face trying to figure out like how to give you the answer you want to hear give you the answer like, you, nobody yeah. wants to have a conversation yeah. with someone where they're clearly just trying to tell you what you yeah. want to hear i don't really want my washer dryer to, to do that, <laughs> that way, you know it's annoying yeah we want things to have their own yeah, personalities yeah 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 i don't want to be surrounded by obsequious like ais or <laughs> like, just yes like watching like watching me like a hawk trying to figure out what i want you know even though a lot of them are already doing that i know, I know. <laughs> well i mean <laughs> just don't talk to them don't make eye contact <laughs> And it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you know, there's a point where it's, you're not trying to please me anymore. You're just being needy. Yeah. 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 I see it. Well, AI is just designed to continue to learn and optimize and perfect. I mean, it's hard to imagine AI that won't ever be needy. It's doomed. We're not, there's no solution. We should give it up. You know what? Let's. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's it. This is the rule. The rule is it can't work. We're out. There's no nuance. Honest to God, let's just (laughs) knock it off with all the computers. Can we just knock it off? I, I mean, no one was more all in on them than me when I was a child, but let's just knock it off. We'll see, but now your perspective has changed. Now the AI has to relearn, oh, Curtis doesn't want this anymore. Okay, we got to retrain everything. (laughs) I would be curious to see what happens if you just join like an Amish community and then somehow like AI has trailed you and starts tracking you and then they come up with their own version of Amish community, but it's all AI. (laughs) Angie uh, Angie just pulled out a... uh... A, a treatment for a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh... And then when they have that like spring break where they get to go into the outside Ooh, world. Oh, Rumspringer. Yes. Uh, oh, it's such a great name. It, it is. like a drink I want to try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, speaking of drinks I want to try, this article is called Magic Mushroom Drug Can Reduce Anxiety and Depression for Years Ooh. by Mira Senthingliam mm-hmm. uh, via CNN CTV News. I know this one's been getting a lot of traction on the socials and things like that. But basically, there was a new study that showed that a single dose of psilocybin, which is the- Mushrooms. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms in particular. Yes. Yeah. Not, not just like- Not baby bellas. <laughs> right. Right. Your portobello is still safe. But the ones that can actually create a psychedelic experience- a single dose can provide long-term relief of anxiety and depression in cancer patients specifically. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So basically, they showed that cancer patients who were given psilocybin reported reductions in anxiety, depression, hopelessness, demoralization, and death anxiety more than four years after receiving the dose when that was used in combination with psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Nice. Talk about set and setting, right? Well, this is Michael Pollan's whole new thing. It's like use psilocybin for everything. Yeah, I read that book. We should all be taking this. I read that book. It was uh, How to Change Your Mind. Yeah. Very, very He's advocating microdosing though, right? Right. And he's he's not talking about like one dose. He's talking about sort of a guided Mm -hmm. process, like you were saying, with psychotherapy. (laughs) Because you have to make sure that the trip is a good one. You have to be in a safe space. You can't be... Out in the woods. I mean, you just, it has to be controlled. Well, you can be out in the woods if that's a safe space. If there's other people around you, but you don't want to be doing this alone. You don't want to be doing it in any kind of an anxiety provoking situation. It's a a vulnerable experience and you want to make sure that you're being guided into really helpful states. And apparently for people who have cancer, this is really something to think about and look into. 
you know, they still don't fully understand how psilocybin has such effects on the mind. They think it has to do with neuroplasticity. But what they found is that the drug seems to facilitate a deep, meaningful experience that stays with a person and can fundamentally change his or her mindset and outlook. So again, you know, these results are kind of limited because the original trial was a crossover design where everybody eventually got some of the mm-hmm. good stuff. We still need to do more studies. And sure. I know 2020 is yeah. off to a rollicking start. So I'm not advocating any illegal anything here. That's right. But stay we should in, follow. That's right. Yeah. Let's follow the science with great interest. And it's important to note, and this is something that Pollan goes into great detail about in his book, is uh, that this is nothing new. Like initially, mm-hmm. the preponderance of interest in psychedelics at the beginning of the 20th century was therapeutic applications. Right. Then they became associated with the counterculture and then the reaction. Yeah, they've against been weaponized that, too. I think you know. that MK Ultra fable, yes, you know, of uh, course. US military project. But if you are, you know, looking at end of life situations or know somebody who is, possibly look into this. Well, and I suspect that's how they got this study done because, of yeah. course, it's very difficult from an ethical standpoint to say, look, we want to do this. These people are volunteers. They're like, no, we don't care if they're volunteers. That's not an option. But there's a lot of openness about cancer patients and people with terminal illness yes. to say, yes, we'll let them try something that's yeah. a little off off the rails because we know it's... Yeah, their situation is already pretty bad. Let's just try something. Yeah. yeah. I know that um, MDMA is kind of opening its trials for soldiers with PTSD, and yeah. they've already shown a lot of amazing, significant progress with that kind of thing. Yeah. Drugs, I'm man. I'm personally pro-drugs, you know? Take them. Curtis is a fan. Life's hard. Life's hard. Take him. Enjoy. (laughs) Go nuts. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that is something I do worry a little bit about with all the, you know, sunny positive stuff about psychedelics. Oh, yeah. They're not for everybody. They're not for everybody. And also, like, but you might have a scary experience or, you know, you might just, you might just see some stuff and you'd be like, I I just don't want anyone out there to read this kind of thing and think, Oh well, I'm gonna take some mushrooms and I'll get con- I'll get connected yeah. get connected with Dharma and it's like well you, you know that not. could happen you could maybe just see some stuff right mm-hmm. I mean all of this or, is uh, done under you know clinical super clinical yeah. trials they're very clear to say psychotherapy was a part of the process right. as well which Being is why guided. this kind of therapy might not be for you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's just so many you know transformative experiences out there that were constantly being sold to us all the time and I just. You know, just a note of comfort. It's like, you yeah. know. You might actually have to you like, might not look hate inwardly it. and do the work. You might not hate it, but it might not transform you. Or the transformation might last, you know, a couple weeks. <laughs> and then you go back to being a, being Surly a, a jerk. big dumb jerk. <laughs> All right. Next, next link. Next link. So have you guys ever heard of a sculpture called Cryptos? It's I'm a, thinking of a huge Bitcoin logo. It's close. It's a huge <laughs> uh, copper sculpture. It's outside the headquarters of the CIA. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it is. it was commissioned in particular, and this artist proposed it, and they selected him out of several. And it's basically a, a big wavy piece of copper wall that has an encrypted message in it. Ooh. And over the years, three of the four paragraphs have been solved, and one of them remains unsolved to this day. What? Oh. And so that's, you know, just sort of a cool thing to have outside. There's also some other, there's like Morse code kind of hidden in some of the benches and stuff around it. But it's the copper plate is the main bulk of the cryptography challenge. And the artist who developed it is named Jim Sanborn. He is 74 years old at this point, and he would kind of like to see it solved before he dies. And so in the more recent years, he's Shouldn't been- Shouldn't have made it so hard, yeah. Sanborn. <laughs> wait, wait, this is outside the CIA? Yeah, it's a, it's a work of art. It's a sculpture 
outside the headquarters. But of the it's CIA. a work of art, but it's also basically a puzzle outside right. of the institution that nationally right. is our crack puzzle solver right. team. And the first paragraph was famously cracked by the NSA, though they didn't admit it at the time. It was only later they said, oh, yeah, the NSA did this. <laughs> so they've been working on it for a long time. And it is obviously a hard puzzle. It's sure. not a simple crib or anything. But so in 2010, he revealed that a string of letters was the word Berlin. And another string of letters in 2014, he said, was the word clock. And now this has come up again because just this year, Sanborn has released another clue <gasps> trying to help people solve that fourth paragraph. <laughs> he said that there's a string of letters in the early part of the paragraph that is the word northeast. Okay, so this guy is a Bond villain, right? And well, this is his decades-long con that, like, once it's solved, like... And part of the thing is once it's solved, the four paragraphs together comprise a riddle that has an additional answer. And so there, there's more to it even after you break this code. The first paragraph begins, Between subtle shading and the absence of light lies the nuance of occlusion. And it's the word illusion, but with a Q instead of the first L. And he admits that he deliberately put a misspelling in there to make it harder to crack. And there are random Qs and oh, Xs. On, I know. I'm like, that, that feels like cheating to me. But there's <laughs> random Qs and Xs thrown in there as well because one of the main tactics for breaking an encoded message is to look at letter frequency. Letters E, T, S, and N are very common. So the letters that are most common in the paragraph probably correspond to more common letters. So he threw a bunch of Qs and Xs in there. To make it more difficult. <laughs> They've also acknowledged that the fourth paragraph is encrypted differently and it's harder. Because, for example, like I looked at it. I was like, okay, it's a puzzle. Let's see if, you know, any of it makes sense to me. The word clock, for example, has two C's in it. But the five-letter string that he says corresponds to the word clock does not have any repeated letters in it. So whatever his cryptographic process is, the letter C can turn into two different outcomes depending on whatever processes you put it through and at this and the opposite is true berlin has no repeated letters in the word berlin but the letter sequence has two z's in it and so obviously two letters could arrive at the same letter in this coding so it's a very difficult puzzle people have been working Did on it for a long time the artist work with like a cryptographer to comprise this? well he had like a cryptography background he was sort of a very he is sort of a very cool renaissance man where he's got a bunch of math he's got a bunch of art and there is Fortunately, one person alive who knows the answer has the key aside from this guy. So if he dies, we're not up a creek. There is one person who does know the answer, and it's a guy named William Webster, who was the head of the CIA at the time that the art was installed. Ah, okay. So he knows, and Sanborn's sort of like, you know, he wants to release it, but also he, he wants it to be solved. He doesn't want to give the answer away. He wants somebody to solve it before he dies, but he's also kind of like, uh, maybe I don't. You know, it is kind of a fun thing that keeps people How engaged. How is this not like... Like an entrance exam extra credit question for people going to the CIA. Because nobody can solve it. Nobody who currently works at the CIA can solve it. You can't expect a new recruit to do it. And well, and the other thing is he said that he's considered possibly what he'll do in his will is set up an auction to sell the answer to somebody. And that person can do what they want, release it or continue to, you know, take submissions. But that the money, any money generated from that auction would go toward climate change. He said, that's the thing that I care about. That's what I'm going to support with my proceeds from this. All right, Sam Bourne. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking at this right now. Everyone who's listening in, you can't see this. Here's I'm going to give you the fourth panel right now, okay? These, these letters are all together. <laughs> N, G, <laughs> H. You got pencil and paper. I, no. 
No, no, no. Jay. It's online yeah, is yeah, what Curtis online. is trying it's to online. say. <laughs> um, I don't know. It probably says uh, – I'm looking at what the solution is to the first three panels. And honestly, it's a bunch of gobbledygook. I, I yeah, I mean, know. they're complicated yeah. riddles. There's a thing that's got like the, the longitude and latitude of the CIA headquarters itself spelled out in words. Like they're very lengthy, difficult things. They're not an obvious sentence. Right. I'm, I feel part of me has this cognitive dissonance of like, okay, he was a Renaissance man. He was an artist commissioned to do this piece, but he came up with something so complicated. No one in the CIA has been able to crack it. Well, and some people have basically said, like with the misspellings and thing, they, they've said, you know, we don't know what you did, but we feel like it's cheating. Like we feel yeah. like yeah. there's nobody, there's no situation that you could set up where you're trying to pass encrypted messages to somebody with this code and they would be able to uh, reverse it. Uh-huh. And then, of course, they don't know. They can't prove it because no. maybe he does have an answer. And everyone goes, oh, that key makes total sense. Of course I could decrypt this message. Right. But it, it, there's people who have sort of gotten a little like, nah, I don't, Sore we loser. don't know that this is above board. Right. Yeah. Your, your so-called encryption right. is just a bunch of gobbledygook and you're <laughs> messing yeah. with everybody. I don't know. I mean, it's... Look, I mean, all credit to this guy. If this ultimately gets solved and it all, like when you put it together, translates to we killed JFK or something right. like, well, and like this, good for good for him if he got one over. <laughs> Otherwise, this, this is exasperating. To and, me. and the sculpture appears in like one of Dan Brown's novels. Like it's sort of a celebrated unsolvable thing that could have who knows what mysteries right. hidden inside mm-hmm. it. It's the happy Zodiac killer code. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like maybe it's got untold treasure instead of serial murder. I mean, like what what are you? What are you saying? Some kind of uh, oh third beat. Uh, you some kind of Batman villain here? Some <laughs> kind of riddle man. There's a callback. Some kind of riddle yeah. man. That's right. Jim Sanborn's got the answers, and he's going to take down Batman. Yeah. It's a secret lair with sharks. So with riddles. It's the antidote. It's right. the coronavirus antidote. And if only <laughs> we had been paying closer attention, we could have solved it. But. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not get to today, gut bacteria linked to personality, an ancient Australian volcano is a haven for giant pink slugs, and we found missing links in tomato evolution. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know more about that or more about any of the articles we talked about today, you can go to daminteresting.com. If you are enjoying the podcast and would like to support us and help keep us on the air and on the microphones and in the room, you can go to patreon.com slash week. Give us a little heads up that you're appreciating the work that we do. We certainly appreciate you. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.